Can you remember uh, maybe the first time that someone really disappointed you? I mean, really disappointed you. If you do remember that first time, it was probably in your childhood. Maybe it was a parent, maybe some other authority figure, some situation where you trusted someone in a relationship and then they failed you and turned out to be flawed and the shock of that. Or maybe if you can't remember the first time, maybe you can remember a recent time when someone really disappointed you. Maybe a friend betrayed you, husband or wife let you down. How'd you feel when that happened? It could be very soul-shaking. Did you feel some fear, maybe some anger? You want to attack and shame that other person? If you pay attention to that, I think it actually feels a lot like betrayal, actually, when someone disappoints you because you, like, you trusted someone and then it fell through. But what about the opposite? Can you think of a, of a time when someone showed you great loyalty and kindness and faithfulness way beyond what you deserve? I mean, I have a lot of this in my life, but no greater example than my mom. My mom, who had three children, and then her husband, my dad, died when we were six, five, and two. We were very poor. She raised us in terrible grief, and then I was a horrible teenager. <laughs> I mean, the worst. Hair down the middle of my back, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, <laughs> a lot of drugs, uh, completely rebellious, and yet my mom was always supportive, always believed in me, even in the worst when I snuck out of the house and went to the front row Alice Cooper Megadeth concert and didn't come home all night. She was there for me. She mortgaged the only thing she had left, her house, to make sure I would go to college because she knew that I wouldn't if it weren't paid for. She just gave and gave herself to me. And no matter what I did in my life, she was always there for me as my advocate. Disappointment in someone, which feels like betrayal, loyalty from someone. These are very, very powerful human experiences that have an impact on us and sometimes actually set the course of our lives. Well, I want you to think about those two powerful human experiences as we turn our attention once again to the life of David in the uh, books of First and Second Samuel. For several weeks here at Sojourn, we've been going through a series of messages on the life of David, and we have just two weeks left, this morning and next week. This morning, uh, we're going to look actually at quite a few episodes in David's life from 2 Samuel, and it's a, it's a time period that spans about 10 years, from, and, and it's going to start from last week's message that Pastor Chad talked about and go down to when David dies, which is what's going to be the message next week. And there would be great value in spending a lot of weeks on these passages, but instead, I want us to kind of take a high altitude view, and we're going to cover from chapters 13 through 24, because I think there's a message in looking at all of these chapters together, a very powerful message from God. And I just want us to, to pause once more and pray before we jump into these texts. Let's pray together. Our kind Father, we thank you that our hope today is not in our abilities, our godliness, our external appearances, that we have our lives together. Our hope is that you are the one who sustains us and loves us and teaches us and transforms us. So please pour out your spirit now that we might be made into your image more. 
And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Chad um, addressed this story from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. If you weren't here, that's okay. But if you were, you know that it's the story of what happened when David, King David, a man at the top of his success, he saw a young woman, abused his authority to take her, had relations with her, lies about it. When it turns out she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up by using his authority again as the king to have her husband killed. David, David, the same David that we've come to know and love through 1 Samuel, our hero, the great leader, the one who stood up to Goliath and beat him, the one who was so godly that even though King Saul was trying to kill him, when David had many chances to kill King Saul, he said, no, I'm gonna trust the Lord. The same David who wrote, he was a poet, he was a musician, and he wrote all these songs that 3,000 years later, the book of the Psalter, the Psalms, Jews and Christians are still singing and praying every day. That's the same guy, David. David, the one who overtakes the city, Jerusalem, and makes it the mighty Jerusalem and brings the ark of God into it with great singing and joy. David, the one who shows great kindness to his enemies, like Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. This same David uses his power and authority to commit adultery and murder. It is devastating. Now, the only good part of that episode that Pastor Chad talked about last week is that true to his character, David does, David's story actually doesn't end with that tragedy. God sends the prophet Nathan, you may know the story, to confront him. David really repents. And one of the places you can see are Psalms 32 and 51. We can see David's sincerity. He owns his sin. He confesses his sin wholeheartedly and finds God's forgiveness. And that's good. I mean, David's one of the good guys. But to be honest with you, this week and my preparation for today's message, as I pondered what happens in chapters 13 to 24, I actually came to wish that that would have been the end of David's story there in chapters 11 and 12. David blew it, he repented, he was forgiven. He lives the rest of his life in humility and peace, a wise and godly man. But actually that's not where David's story ends. And even though I've been studying the Bible for a long time, it wasn't until reading these last chapters from 13 to 24 in 2 Samuel that I realized that how I've wanted David's story to end is what I assumed had actually happened, but it's not actually the reality. And what I mean is this, that we see through 1 and 2 Samuel, the back and forth of the story that's going on. You have bad King Saul, and he's contrasted with good King David, who's humble and gracious and great. Two characters in parallel. David then becomes the high point of Israel's story. He's the great warrior king who's wholehearted, and bad King Saul is the opposite. David then is followed by Solomon, his son, who is good for a while, but then he ends up falling away and marrying foreign wives and falling away from God. And the result is just a continued downhill slide because if you read on in the Bible, you'll see that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is even worse. He's a fool and a punk, really. Rehoboam has the chance to bring the kingdom back to its glory, but instead he's arrogant and he's self-centered. The result is that it's Rehoboam. So this is David's grandson, Solomon's son, who causes something that still exists today. The two kingdoms, the two uh, tribes of Judah, 
uh, in the south and Israel in the north to split. The conflict between them and the result is the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament story is just the destruction of all these bad kings and queens and failure and sin and murder and the division that it was never really fully united. So I knew all that. And so, and so I, thought of, I thought of David and this whole story as like a mountain with Saul, the bad guy on one side and, and David at the very top and then Solomon's there, but then Solomon kind of goes down in Rehoboam. I thought of it like, we think of like a, a mountain with this pinnacle being David. And while that's generally true, when you read chapters 13 to 24 of 2 Samuel, you realize that the story and the reality is a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. In fact, it's like an actual mountain. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to visit Colorado or some of our amazing Western states very often, but you know, it's interesting. We have this image, we have this symbol of what a mountain is, you know, two sides with this point at the top. And if you were to draw a mountain, that's how you draw it, right? You draw it with some sort of point at the top. And as you're driving through Kansas or Nebraska a long ways for miles and miles away as you're heading towards the Rockies, you can, they actually kind of look like that. But if you've ever actually hiked up a mountain, and I have quite a few in Colorado, you realize that when you get to the top of a mountain, it's rarely, if ever, it's not actually a point in that sense. I mean, it's not like there's just one little point, like the symbol of it. The reality is once you get to the top of a mountain, it's actually very varied. It's rough and different places and there's not a clear height. And as I think, I think that's really the reality of mixed elevation and rough spots of David's life as well. When you read these chapters, you realize in some sense, it's the apex of Israel's history, but it's also very complicated and nuanced and disappointing. And I think in this, God has a message for us today. So what happens? Well, if you have a Bible, or you can grab the Pew Bible if you don't, or pull it up on your phone. What I'm going to do is do a flyover, a mountaintop view on 2 Samuel 13 to 24. So a lot of chapters, but I can go through it pretty quickly here and hear what happens. So it might be helpful to look along in the Bible. If not, you can just listen as well. Chapter 13. So when we think of David, and when we think of David's son, we usually think of Solomon because Solomon's the one who eventually is going to become the one who succeeds him on the throne. But like any other fruitful king in the ancient world, David actually had a lot of sons. This is part of what you did to assure your line with many different wives. And at this point in David's life, he's probably about 60 years old at this point. David has older grown sons with their own children besides Solomon. And these stories concerned those other sons and daughters. And one of David's royal sons we see in chapter 13 is named Amnon. And he has another son from a different mother named Absalom. Now, Absalom has a beautiful unmarried sister named Tamar. She's probably in her late teens, early 20s. Now, Amnon, this other son who would be Absalom's half-brother and a cousin to Tamar, Amnon falls in love with Tamar, or really better, lust. And in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, we have this horrible story. And I'm glad that we're not concentrating on this story alone today. But it's, it's just a devastating story where Amnon and his royal palace brats, they, his friends, they hatch a plan for Amnon to satisfy his desires with Tamar, to force her. And this is exactly what happens. It's sickening. And then, if this were not enough, his shameful lust turns to shame-filled hate and he kicks her out 
immediately after this, shamed and defiled. So she flees to her brother Absalom's house with ashes on her head and a robe torn in disgrace and dishonor. Her life is over in an ancient culture like this. Absalom takes her in, provides for her, but in his heart, something snaps for Absalom and a fire is lit. And one of the most telling verses in this distressing story is actually found in 2 Samuel 13, 21. It says, when David heard all this, he was furious, period. Word gets around, of course. King David hears of this tragic thing going on between his sons and daughters. And he's angry, but notice he does nothing. Possibly he was reluctant to punish someone who had committed the same sin that he had, right? Possibly he was just resigned. If you're reading through First and Second Samuel, what's really striking is that David is acting like Eli did way back at the beginning of First Samuel, where his sons sin against God and Eli does nothing. And that's what David does here. And the result is, then the rest of chapter 13, we learn how this fire of vengeance that was kindled in Absalom's heart burns for two years, consuming him until he finally connives the situation to get Amnon back. And that's exactly what happens. Absalom plans to get Absalom, Amnon out of the city on a sheep shearing party. They get Amnon drunk and there in front of all the royal sons, Amnon is killed by Absalom's sword. And the segment of the story ends then with Absalom having to flee because he's murdered one of, the, one of his brothers. And David is mourning and in grief over the whole affair. You see, he's not only lost Amnon that day, but he also loses Absalom who now goes and lives among the Geshurites, a Gentile people. Now that leads then, if you look in chapter 14, to the events that happen. Some years pass, three years pass. King David is apparently still very saddened and depressed over the whole affair, understandably. So his military general, Joab, devises a plot to help the king get his groove back by bringing Absalom back to town. So Joab hires a woman, a woman from Tekoa in chapter 14. She comes before King David, pretending to be a widow. She tells this heartbreaking story about having two sons, one of whom kills the other in the fields and then has to flee, and now she has no way to provide for herself. Her story tugs at David's heart. He promises, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And then, and you and I as readers can see what's going on. This is an exact parallel to what had happened with David and Nathan, where a prophet comes, someone comes, tells a parable that convicts David. And so too here, this woman then says, actually, I'm talking about you, David. And it becomes clear in chapter 14 that Joab, the, the general of the army, is behind this. David agrees to forgive Absalom them and bring, Jerusalem, bring him back to Jerusalem with one caveat. And that is <clears throat> that Absalom can come back, but David won't see him and he has to live separately. We don't know what's going on here. It seems like maybe Joab is trying to get in the favor of Absalom and is supporting Absalom to become the new king rather than Solomon. We don't know for sure. But what happens is Absalom comes back and is living in Jerusalem, but separate from David. And then what you see in chapters 14 and 15, an even deeper tragedy than what's happened so far. Absalom returns to Jerusalem. He's frustrated by his second-class citizenship. So he starts to plot. He plots to overthrow his own father. Absalom, who like his father, David, is apparently very handsome. He's got this awesome long hair. He's intelligent. He's winsome. He's a natural leader. He's basically a Jewish Mel Gibson from Braveheart, right? He's like, he's a man's man. He's what David had been, really. 
And Absalom though is shrewd. He shrewdly and carefully spends four years while he's living in Jerusalem, secretly plotting against his father. While David's in his palace, apparently not doing much or leading much, Absalom takes steps carefully in Jerusalem that doing the things that David should have been doing. So for example, in 2 Samuel 15, the first few verses, we see that when people come to Jerusalem to the king to get justice and to, to get fairness and get renderings of judgment, Absalom is sitting at the gate. He sets up a little shop. He sits at the gate and says, come aside, I'm the king's son. I will give you justice. Come, come alongside here. I think like Lucy, the psychiatrist from Peanuts or something. So this little booth there, but Absalom's there with his handsome locks and his brave, brave heart look. And he says, come, come to my side. And so when people come and bow down before him because he is the king's son, look at what it says in, in verse five. It says, whenever anyone approached Absalom to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. He doesn't stand aloof. He's, he's a real winsome guy. And Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Sound familiar? In, in a remarkably parallel way to the younger David, but with a difference, we have this handsome, winsome leader who does what the king should have been doing. doing. Remember, David is loved by people because he's doing what the, King Saul should have been doing and, and wasn't. But the difference is, this is kind of like Spider-Man and Spider-Man 3. This is Venom-inspired dark Spider-Man, right? I mean, this because Absalom is doing this not out of wholeheartedness and godliness. He's doing this, he's light, acting like the king while David's kind of the bumbling fool of Saul. But Absalom is doing this for the purpose of overthrowing his father. And then we see... In chapter 15, this is what happens. And it is, this has got to be one of the saddest stories of the Bible because David realizes all of a sudden that he's about to be overthrown by his own son. So he has to leave the palace, flee Jerusalem with his ragtag band of faithful followers, leaving his wives behind that Absalom's gonna violate. And it's this tragic reversal of the earlier scene that we talked about a few weeks ago where David comes into Jerusalem dancing with joy and now he leaves Jerusalem weeping, fleeing. And then he has to spend the next many months or years in the wilderness again. And it must have dawned on him many times how deeply ironic and sad it was that, you remember he had spent those 10 years in the wilderness when Saul was chasing him when he was a righteous man. Now here he is on the other side of the glory of his kingdom with his son persecuting him, fleeing and living in the desert. And the story goes on. You can read it in these chapters. David's men go come up fighting against Absalom's men, all Jewish people killing each other. It's just such a tragedy. And then, in this ironic plot twist, David's men beat Absalom's men. And while Absalom is fleeing on a donkey, his glorious hair becomes his downfall. <laughs> He's fleeing and he goes under these oak trees and his hair, it's just like, if, if this weren't in the Bible, you'd say, this is just a crazy story, right? His hair gets caught in the branches of the oak trees. The donkey keeps going and there he is hanging from a tree by his amazing hair. That's why, that's what happened to me, right? So. And at Joab and David's men, David's not even anywhere. David's in his palace crying. Joab and his men come and find Absalom and they run him through. They kill him, hanging there and then bury him. And what follows in chapters 18 and 20 is just, 
the story of David's great grief in this thing. The whole thing's a mess. He's a broken man. It's a broken city. He returns a third of the man that he was to Jerusalem. And then what you have in the, in the last part of 2 Samuel, these chapters from 21 to 24, is really a conclusion to the whole book, the conclusion to First and Second Samuel together. You have this story in chapter 21 of some bloodbath that happens afterwards. Chapter 22, you have a song or a psalm of David, basically Psalm 18 that sums up David's experience. Chapter 23, you have this list of all David's mighty warriors and the things they did. It's, it feels very much like a conclusion. And then when, if all these stories are not jacked up enough, the book ends with chapter 24, this weird and perplexing story about David taking a census to count how many people he has, maybe to boost his confidence and the God's anger and judgment about this and then how David has to deal with it. And then the book ends <clears throat> kind of looking forward, but with a deep irony and tragedy to it, David ends up buying this plot of land what will eventually be the place where the temple of God is built. Do you see any pattern through all of this? I think there is a pattern and it's this, that David in these last 10 years of his life, from age 60 to 70, roughly, he's passive and he's fading. He's passive and he's fading. And rather than being the active, wholehearted, brave, wise, just leader that we've come to know and love, in these stories, David is passive and fading. It's not the mountaintop I thought it was. It seems that throughout these stories, David is weakened by his sin. He fails to rule and lead firmly. In his passivity then, evil and conniving men take the opportunity to rise up. In fact, the last active thing David did was the whole situation with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. That's the last time he sort of actively does anything in these books. The rest of it is all passive. In fact, as one commentator notes, he says, David lost initiative. He spent the rest of his reign feebly reacting to events rather than taking things in hand. He became a pitiable figure, an empty robe, an old man shivering in his bed. And friends, when I read these chapters on Monday, thinking about today and this moment, I was stunned. And I was even disappointed. This is David, David, the great king. And this is how his life winds down. These stories, again, span about 10 years from chapter 13 to 24. He's like age 60 to 70. This is the peak of his power and his strength and his wisdom down to his last breath. And in this last decade, David doesn't go out in this blaze of glory but he fades out like last night's great bonfire that this morning are barely warm gray embers on a chilly morning. It's sobering. I feel sobered. I felt scared by these stories. I think about my own life and your life. Rather than this mountain line drawing with David at the top, the reality is that David, the greatest king of Israel, has failed and faded. As I read this and pondered this sad reality, these stories, and thought about and said to the Lord, what am I supposed to say to these people on Sunday? How can I stand before these people and tell these stories and be an agent of life and grace, these people who need to hear from you? I wanna be a conduit. I wanna be life-giving to you because God himself is life-giving. What am I supposed to say? Watch out. Even if your life's going well, you'll probably fade out and even blow it. Have a great week. <laughs> I not only cried out to God, I cried out to Pastor Kevin. I called him on Monday and said, 
what the heck were you thinking <laughs> assigning these pas- this passage? And why didn't you tell me this is what it was? This is what you give to the associate pastor. This is what, not what you do to me. Or <laughs> notice he's not here this week, right? <clears throat> but as I continued to read and think, I realized that I think I was missing the most important part of these stories. The part that I think you can only see if you step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on. I realized that I was missing really the most important character in these stories and what he's up to. The most important character in all these stories is one who actually doesn't appear very often, but he's there. He's there as the foundation. He's there in overarching control, and it's, of course, God himself. Though God doesn't appear very often, there is a sense that he is in control even as he lets these tragic stories unfold. In fact, I think the place where he does appear most explicitly is in that last song, that psalm of chapter 22, and then again in the events of 24. And as I, as I pondered all of these chapters, I was reminded of something central and beautiful about the Bible's message, even in the midst of these messed up stories. And it can really be summed up in one Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed is a very important biblical idea that actually has already appeared a lot of times in First and Second Samuel, and it's throughout the whole Bible. And Hesed is it's a really difficult word to translate into English because its meaning is woven into the reality of God's work in the world. It's not something we have as much in our culture, but the idea of Hesed is something like, here's a definition, faithfulness to covenant obligations that's expressed in acts of generosity and kindness. And I know that's kind of a mouthful, but maybe we could translate it as, loving kindness, dependability, covenant loyalty, or some have even said loyal love. This idea of loyalty and loving kindness from God. You see, it's difficult to render into one English word, but this, I would suggest to you friends, is a key consistent idea throughout the whole Bible that God is faithfully loving and loyal to his promises even in the midst of and despite amazing human frailty, flaw, failure, and fading. This, the story of Hesed, is the real story going on behind all these tragic stories that are at the end of David's life. David is failing and fading like all humans, but God continues to be faithful and loyal, in control, and working out grace and kindness to his people. After all, do you remember back in 1 Samuel when they asked for a king? God said, you do not want a human king. I will be your king. And the people said, no, no, we want a human king. And God said, well, if you, if you want a human king, this is what's going to happen. And of course, Saul is a horrible king, but then it seems like they finally got it. Oh, God, maybe you didn't understand this, God. David is awesome. But there's no doubt in the way how David's story ends that he is still merely human. And the psalm or song of chapter 22 reiterates that this hesed has actually been David's experience throughout his life, that in the midst of David's trials and difficulties, persecution, suffering, God, if you look at chapter 22, you'll see all these images of God. He's a rock. He's a provider. He's a warrior. God is. He's a stronghold. David's not those things. And in David's best moments, he knew that. It's God who is the rock and provider and warrior. And the psalm ends with these words, 2251. God gives his king great victories, David says. God shows unfailing kindness to his anointed 
to David and his descendants forever. There it is. Even in the worst failing of even the great king, God is still faithful. And of course, that's the message throughout the Bible. Just If you just step back and think about the great characters of the Bible, let me just name a few. Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Peter. If you look at their stories, this is the exact same story. They're great and greatly used by God, and they all do amazingly stupid things. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife so that he won't get killed and then ends up trying to have children with somebody else, right? You think of the errors and foolishness of Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Peter, all of them. We could go through every character. And what we see is that they made amazing, they were amazingly flawed people, yet God was faithful to them and to his work in the world and worked it out despite the brokenness and the flaws and the fading. And here then is the most amazing and stunning thing to consider. The ultimate and final manifestation of God's chesed, according to the Bible, is actually a person. A person who is in fact called the promised son of David, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there are always a lot of ways that we can and should connect the stories of the Old Testament to Jesus, like First, Second Samuel, it's really easy. But I was really struck this week on how remarkably connected these stories from David's life, the end of his life, are meant to be read in a contrasting way to Jesus. In other words, if you read Second Samuel 13, 24, and you read the Gospels, this is not an accident that they are portrayed in the opposite way. That is that although Jesus is fully human, he is not flawed and he does not fade. In fact, he is shown over and over to be all that you and I long for and ever could ever hope for. Jesus is shown to be a king, a warrior, a friend, a leader who does not disappoint and fail and fade. Like David, Jesus is wholehearted. He praises God, he trusts God, and he suffers greatly. But unlike David, Jesus never fades out. And there are a ton of passages in the Bible that we could show this, but I just wanna put one in front of you. Hebrews 1, let me read these verses. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Friend, this is the contrast between King David and King Jesus that is not an accident. Even the greatest of human kings, David, who is a beautiful, humble, powerful human soul is shown ultimately to be flawed and failing and fading. And that is deeply disappointing, but not so with Jesus. He is shown to be the heir of God's kingdom, the son of David, the son of God, an exact representation of God's character and glory. And he does not fail or fade. He is the one that our souls long for. We could have great hope that David would be the kind of person we'd long for, but we are shown at the end of his life that even he is flawed. Humans fade, but God shows perfect chesed in Jesus ultimately. 
Now, let me bring this down from those lofty thoughts to our real lives today. As I think about, again, I said I was very sobered and humbled by these chapters. As I think about it, applying this truth that humans fade, but God is faithful. I want to think about application in two senses. One, horizontal, our relationships with each other, and the other vertical. First, the horizontal. Remember how I asked you to remember a time when someone disappointed you and how that affected you? Remember that again. What would happen if you and I reframed our expectations of each other, remembering that, of course, people are going to fail us just like we fail others, and instead focused on love? Husbands and wives, as you think about the difficulties in your marriage, a lot of it probably has to do with disappointed expectations. Maybe explicit betrayal, but even it's probably for many here a more subtle sense of betrayal that you thought marriage was going to be this and do this for you. And you feel very betrayed and disappointed. Friends, I'm sure there are friends that you used to be really close to and now maybe there's enmity or you don't have any relationship with them because of some disappointing thing that happened one way or both ways. Parents to children and children to parents, especially children, probably the first person you remember disappointing you or adults of seek to you as well was when you were a child because there's, there is a point where children, especially teenagers, you teenager here, you begin to realize, oh, my parents suck, right? <laughs> even if you had a good relationship and even if they're really good parents, you, there comes a point where they're no longer your hero because real life happens. And that disappointment is very deep and very powerful. Workers to bosses, Congregants to pastors, I know that there are people here that are disappointed with the pastoral care they've gotten at some point. Friends, this is all real life. People will disappoint us. People will fade. This is why there's so much emphasis in the Bible on forgiving each other and treating each other with grace upon grace. What would happen if you and I, in thinking about our relationships with other people, what if we reframed our expectations that, of course, people will disappoint us. I don't mean in a cynical or skeptical or giving up way, but what I mean is what if we can learn to make space for people to fail us and still love them? What if we could make that space for people to fail us and still love them? How would that affect our marriages and our friendships and our churches and families? I know it's hard to do because when we're hurt by people, we want justice. We want self-protection and we want justice. The idea of forgiving others when they've disappointed us and, and hurt us, that's really hard to do. I know it. But think of someone, maybe someone in this church, maybe someone else in town, maybe someone far away, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe someone sitting right next to you or someone long dead, someone who has disappointed you. They turned out to be, surprise, surprise, sinful, broken, not as awesome as you first thought they were, capable of hurting you. I know there are people in this congregation that I've disappointed at some point, 
And I know there are people who have disappointed me. Sometimes it's the same people. (laughs) But what if you and I reframed our expectations and recognized that this is normal, real life? Why should we expect anything different? And if we can begin to reframe these again, not in cynical ways, not in skeptical ways, but a little bit more gracious and forgiving when this happens, recognizing that if even King David, this ideal human in the Bible, failed and faded, so too we can show grace to each other. That's the horizontal just thought about how this might speak to our lives. But there's also a vertical one, and that is this, that even though people will fail us, And even though we will fail others, God truly is always faithful and always relates to us from his loyal love. It's his character. He cannot do other because he is not like us. He is not flawed and failing. He is in wholeness, always views us and relates to us from his loyal love. The stories of flawed people in the Bible in our lives shows us that you and I have a longing for someone just like that. If, if, we did not, if we were not made for that, we would not have a sense of that. We would not have a longing for someone to always be faithful, always loyal, always love us, to never be disappointed with us, but instead to have a covenant love, a loyal love set upon us. The very fact that you long for that and you may have been wounded so much and you may feel so far from that, you've even maybe forgotten that that's what you long for. But if you look inside, you will see that is what you are longing for. Someone who is on your side, who loves you, who knows you in all your brokenness and actually is committed to you. Maybe you had an advocate in your life like that, like my mom. Maybe you haven't. My mom's not perfect. She's fading and will soon be gone. Some of you have had that. Some of you have not. But the very fact is that you long for that. And that is exactly who Holy Scripture shows us Jesus to be. And on the night that Judas betrayed and disappointed Jesus, I wonder how he felt about that. Jesus makes clear that what he's about to do in the table that we're celebrating with imaginary bread that might be coming my way, no? And the table that we're celebrating is that he's actually making a new covenant. That covenant language, that's where chesed comes from. He's making a covenant with us. That's not an accident. The perfect King Jesus, better than King David, is saying, I'm making a covenant with you through my own body. And so he takes the bread. Thank you, Chad. And he, asking you shall receive, right? He does take this. And when he breaks it, it's an amazing symbol of the fact that there's a new covenant being made, a new chesed commitment from God to us for any who will partake of this. And he says, this is through my broken body. It's through the blood And so what we do each Sunday is we celebrate these the sacred drama of remembering that through these events that we're celebrating right now, we have that kind of commitment from God. Unlike any king or any human could give us, Jesus, who is fully human and fully God, makes this covenant love promise for us. And so if you're a believer today, we invite you to come 
and renew your commitment, renew your joy, renew your faith, renew your hope by coming forward. And as you partake in the bread and dip it into the wine or the juice, remember that these are the symbols of the fact that you have one who is on your side, who is for you in a way that no other human can or will ever be. Let's pray.